What is the absolute most important thing that you guys pack? A compass. If you need them, you got them. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of people out there that don't know how to run a map and a compass anymore. Duct tape, zip ties. The reason I do take a Nalgene is two part. Super glue, dental floss. I had a spreadsheet. How many miles going in? And the weight of every single thing went on that spreadsheet. The farther you go in, the better your your plan for get for meat care has to be. If you're if you are mounting that bull and bringing a cape out, now you have three trips. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, my sidekick, Evan Williams here. And today we've got one of Evan's old buddies. Um, we've got an interesting podcast. Tyson Klein is joining us. Tyson is basically a rookie bow hunter. A, I'm not, not a rookie bow hunter, rookie elk bow hunter. And he's doing, yes, man, slap me, Tyson. You can, you can do it. But he is going on his very first elk bow hunt out West, a public land hunt. And he had a bunch of questions for Evan and Evan was like, man, this would make a good podcast. There's lots of guys out there who might be doing the exact same thing, loading up for their elk hunt right now. And some of the questions that Tyson has uh, might help some of you guys out. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of pour down through Tyson's questions and have a Q and a session. And Evan and I are going to give him some advice on, uh, on, on what we think that he needs to be prepared for and what kind of equipment he has to have along for the trip. So welcome to the podcast, Tyson. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. We won't hold it against you that you're one of Evan's old buddies. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> how, how'd you and Evan, uh, get hooked up how long have you known each other well i don't uh probably what seven 2017 was when i went to that hoyt dealer school out there yep is that yep. right yeah that's that's the first time we actually that's got the to first sit time down we actually and... like sat down and talked but i think nah. we saw each other at a party back when we were in high school yeah yeah so, so you're you're from the same hometown, but you didn't you didn't hang around no. way back Ooh, in the no, day. No, 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 uh, uh-uh. no, 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 no. <laughs> Major. We're rivals. about we're about thirty minutes away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Major rivals. Their their mosquitoes are so juiced up. They're like hummingbirds. <laughs> uh, so rival high schools yep yeah yep. rival high schools and and rival towns yep and yeah. then and then you come can to say f- that coming to find out we were uh we've got a lot of the same contacts uh when it came to the agriculture on the farming side so we grew up hunting some of the same ground and didn't even know it until actually this last year mm. yeah this guy stole my spot Oh, and I didn't even know it. I called him. I'm like, Hey dude, I used to hunt this place back in high school. I think I'm going to go over there. And he's like, wait, send me a link to that. So I sent him the Onyx map. I'm like, Hey, you going to steal my hunting spot? No, he's already stole it. He's already been in there with a saddle. I'm like, was, what? I've what hunted it four days. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. My, uh, 
one of my buddies I grew up with was in my brother's class below me and we played football and wrestled together. His cousin owns the piece to the South and we always had access to that one and got on there again this year. And I'm like, Oh, finally. And then, yeah, a week later, Tyson's calling me going, Oh, I got a spot on the river. I'm like, you don't live near the river. What spot are you talking about? And I'm literally sitting in a tree on that spot when he sends it to me. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm Brutal. surprised. I'm surprised you guys talk. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I uh, need yeah. his, I need his shop when I go home. He's got all my tools. <laughs> got all his tools. Well, yeah, I've acquired a few over the years. It no. doesn't happen overnight. I will say that. Yeah. Well, uh, it's funny, Evan, talking about being a football player. If you guys have ever seen Evan in real life today, he looks like a football player. Finally. But back in those days, man, what'd you, what'd you play? You were a scrawny little squirt. as a free safety and tailback. Yeah. I hope you were fast because uh, I was. You, you weren't built like football player back then. I had a, I had a 10, 10, three split in the hundred. Oh, that's so, pretty darn good. Yeah, I was good until I tore my quads. Oh, well, that's now, bad. Now he just, now he just takes a lot of miracle grow. Yep. Cool oh, stuff. Dude. Hey, oh. it's helping my hairline. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into uh, this. So you're going uh, on your, your first Western elk hunt, huh? Yes, sir. And, um, um so this is a this is a public land hunt, and um, just out of curiosity, what state are you going to? Colorado. Everybody does. There ain't no elk in Colorado. Everybody stay away from Colorado. Um, well, we'll hope we'll hope there's still someone I get there. <laughs> well, that's that's my home state. So uh, yeah, it can it can be done the first time that you're going out on something like this now are you going are you going to be staying in a in a base camp of some sort or are you going to be spiking out backpacking type hunt well i, I just uh texted evan last week i was like i need a tent what do i recommend he's like go get a kuyu so i got a kuyu but i bought the two person instead of the one person because there was like ounces difference and they had a sale running and i was able to get the two p tent versus the one p tent cheaper Mm-hmm. Well, and have all the pieces with it. A little yep. secret: a two P tent actually means one person for a normal person, um, and it's it's always like that. A one a one person tent is like a glorified bivy sack, yep. you know. And <laughs> it looks super small, and I was like, well, at least this one, like, it's got a place I can tuck some of my crap under the under the tent fly, and yeah. like my and pack and stuff. That one's got dual vestibule, so you should have them on either side, which gives you a little bit more extra space, too. You yeah. can do, you know, pack and, and bow and all your gear on one side and boots on the other to, you know, quick escape in the middle of the night when nature calls. My rule of thumb has usually been if there's one of us staying in a tent, if it's just me, I want a two-person tent because you just, yeah, you know, I'm I'm six foot. 215 pounds and you know i'm i i feel a little cramped in a two-person tent sometimes if there's two of us staying in tent definitely a three-person tent most of the time and that's just the way i feel about it but uh you know i think that evan's advice there was pretty darn good um my the system that i use is a tarp i usually use a kafaru super tarp Mm -hmm. and and a bivy sack and i just like that because 
the tarp hey when you set that thing up um you you pitch it kind of like a tent it's tall in the middle comes down on the sides and you've just got all kinds of room in there but you don't have a floor Mm -hmm. which is why you need a bivy sack around your your sleeping bag under there because you can get moisture up underneath there if you're in a bad rainstorm you set it up in the wrong place or something like that but you just have all kinds of all kinds of room but then you know if if you might be facing elements like snow or something like that it's nice to have those closed in walls Mm-hmm. and a floor yeah. yeah i plan on leaving the night of the 23rd and hunting through the rest of the season yeah yep. so, so yeah depending on, depending on where you're going to be settling like i've had snow well a couple of years ago there was snow the first week yeah september it, 5th we got a foot and a half yep. two years a couple three years ago yep so which that is would definitely make it interesting oh <laughs> i we were using uh my we've i've got a camper and we were using that as a base camp and then a lot of times we will spike out from there and there were these guys that were out of state hunters in from florida when that storm hit and they were staying just overnight in the little campground trying to they couldn't be bivvied out in that stuff and all they had was their little backpacking tents and i remember we hollered over to them you boys want to come into this camper and i mean they were so relieved to have some reprieve <laughs> from that because man that's a lot of snow to deal with when you're when you're spiking out in a yeah, backpacking tent yeah that's bad so let's get into some of the initial questions that you have well the first one i got is uh What's what's the best option for a water filter system to run up in the mountains if you're going to be backpacking around? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you the system that I use, and then Evan might have a different system, but the uh, mine's kind of unique. Um, I use a Catadyne uh, gravity-fed system, okay? And I, I forget how many gallons. It's like two gallons that that, uh, that gravity-fed system will hold. But what I typically do is I will get to wherever it is that I want to spike camp. And then what I do is I dump all of my gear out in my tent or my tarp, whatever I'm using. And you've seen those big three mil contractor trash bags, haven't you? Real thick contractor trash bags. You want to make sure you get unscented ones very important to get unscented ones when you're doing this but what i'll do is i'll take that empty backpack and i will line it with a three mil contractor grade trash bag and usually i'll line it with two of them just in case one of them has a hole in it or a leak generally speaking when they're brand new they don't but i'll line that backpack with those two contractor grade trash bags and then i'll go down to my water source and i will just take a kettle and i will fill that backpack up with as much water as I can stand to carry back. So you, you know, that might be five, six, seven gallons that are in that backpack inside those contractor grade trash bags. Then I will backpack that water back to my spike camp and I will lift that, those two contractor grade trash bags out, set them down on the ground and, you know, clear a spot where I don't have pine needles and stuff that might puncture it, but those are pretty hard to puncture anyway. 
set it down right there. And then I'll take some paracord and run it up to a tree or something and just tie the top of it up in the air to where the water can escape. Now, what I do is when I'm ready to take some water and put it into my gravity fed filter, I just open those contractor grade trash bags up, reach my kettle down in there and scoop out big kettles of water all at once at a time and then pour them into the gravity fed filter. And that way I literally will have water for the entire week. And I don't have to worry about going and finding water every day. Every morning, I'll just go over to that gravity fed filter, open up the little thing and fill up my, either my, uh, uh, bottles, or, uh, I usually use a hydration bladder and I'll use, I'll just fill that hydration bladder up every morning. And when I come back into camp every night, I've got plenty of water right there. And the nice thing about it is you don't got to sit there and pump with that gravity fed. You just open the nozzle on the bottom of it and the water pours out and you fill up your kettle for, uh, for cooking that night or whatever you want to do. It's a, unique way of doing it, but it keeps me from having to worry about going and chasing water down every time I turn around. When you're, when your guys are up walking around the mountain, do you, do you just use your bladder in your backpack or do you take like two Nalgene bottles or what do you do? I prefer to use the water in the backpack, the, the bladder in the backpack. It's just, it's just easier. Uh, I can haul more, you know, I have more water. I think the one that I'm using right now is like 90 ounces or something like that. It's a, it's, it's like four, uh, what's it called? Bottles. Um, Nalgene. you just said it. What's that? Nalgene, Nalgene bottles. Yeah. It's like four Nalgene bottles in, and, you know, carrying those Nalgene bottles around. If you want to have easy access to it, there's some systems where you, you put them on your hip or something like that. But now you've got a hard plastic thing right there that gets in the way every time you turn around. And it's also kind of loud and planky if you're going through brush and stuff like that. So it's all personal preference. I know plenty of guys who, who go the Nalgene bottle route, but I prefer a, a good bladder in my backpack. Yep. Okay. And I, and I run both. Um, so my system on me is a three liter bladder in my bag. And then I have a Nalgene on my hip. When it comes to water filtration, I run the Catadyne Hiker Pro, which is a water pump system. And then Myself and each of my hunting partners each carry an MSR 10 liter dromedary bag. That makes us a little bit more mobile. So if we need to move, then we don't have a lot of water we're taking. Um, you know, two, three days, we're usually through that. So it does create the, the issue of having to go get more water and come back. But um, it does allow us to be a little bit more mobile if we need to be. Yeah. And that is my primary system. So we'll get in, set camp. Most of the time, if we're hunting in an area that we know, we are dumping camp, emptying all of our packs, and we're going with our bladders, our Nalgene, and our dromedary bags. And we're going to that water source, and we're loading everything up, taking them back to camp, and hanging those dromedary bags in camp. Yeah. And we can fill out of those every morning. When I hunt, I always have my filter on me. And then I also have a backup system of a SteriPin. So if I get somewhere and either my filter goes bad or gets full or whatever happens with my pump, um, I can fill my Nalgene up and then stare a pin one minute. That water is now pure and I can dump that into my Camelback and then go back and do that whole system. The reason I do take a Nalgene is two part. One, 
I make sure that the Nalgene has my measuring marks on it because different peak refuel meals or mountain house or whatever uh, freeze dried meal system you choose to use. A lot of those are no longer universal that they all take 16 ounces. Some take six, some take eight, some take 12. So I can be very precise with that measurement at night, fill that up. And then I know I have an exact amount of water for whatever meal I'm eating. It also allows me to put different electrolyte drink mixes into my Nalgene instead of running it through my water bladder. So my water bladder only has purified water. It never takes any mixes or anything like that. All that goes That's through my good system. It's fancier than mine. And when my backup system is just iodine tablets, a lot of people hate the taste of them. I'll usually try and cover them up with an emergency or, you know, something, some Mio or something like that. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make do for the weight savings. Just those two little. Yeah, Danny, Danny's system is way yeah, lighter than mine. I, I, for, and the older you get, and the, the first time you head up there, all this stuff adds up. Every ounce adds up. And I've just mm-hmm. gotten to the point where, man, I'm cutting the end of my toothbrush off to make things lighter. You know, take I've, heard, I've already come to the, mm-hmm. I've already come to the conclusion the mountain's going to humble me. Yes. I mean, I've been. I've been working my legs. I've been doing a lot of things that Evan told me to do. I've been ha- uh, hiking side hills with my backpack. I've been doing all that stuff, broke in my boots like a month ago. Yeah. But it's still going to kick me. Yeah. It's still going to kick me yeah. hard. And, and I've accepted that. And, and, and the biggest thing is, yeah, stay hydrated. Drink a lot of water, more than you think you need. I mean, five liters would probably be a good number to be hitting every day. And just go slow. It's not about how much you're covering. It's about how you're covering it. Yeah. There's one thing that will steal your motivation faster than anything else. And that's fatigue. And the more weight you're carrying around, the, the harder it is. You want to, you want to maximize your capabilities with the lightest weight possible. In my opinion. Makes sense. Back. So do you guys like, you guys probably aren't caffeine consumers. <laughs> as I, as I'm drinking an energy drink right now, do you guys, or like Evan, do you take, like I don't I don't drink coffee, but I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna like take C four up the mountain like twenty five cans of C four to get through the week. Do I just take my shredded pump that you told me to take? Um, so I wouldn't take the shredded pump since that is a pure stimulus pre workout. Um, that same company Warrior Fuel makes two products that I always take on my hunts. One is Refuel, and the other is Elevate. Um, so they've got nootropics. They've got minerals, trace minerals, electrolytes. They do have, I want to say Elevate has 25 milligrams of caffeine in it. So it's just enough to get in your system to slightly elevate your heart rate, to start pumping fresh oxygenated blood into your system and into your muscles to help promote movement and lack of fatigue. And I am, I'm the old school guy here. I got to have my cup of coffee every morning for sure. And uh, I just use the, the Folgers tea bag coffee brewers. And in the morning I'll boil up some water for my, for my breakfast and for my coffee and pour some in a cup and put one of those little tea bags in there for a couple of minutes. And I have my morning coffee and I'm good to go. Okay. I don't necessarily have a, a, a supplement that I take with me every single time. I'm just trying to stay as hydrated as possible. 
Okay, I got another kind of question related to water. Um, can you use that those filters for pretty much any water that you find, or is there something that I am looking for besides like a water hole, or do I need to have running water? Or I mean, how do how do I not kill myself with the water up there? Making sure you filter everything. Doesn't matter what water I find, as long as I filter it, I'm fine. Doesn't matter the water source. If you find a puddle full of elk piss, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> well, and and yeah, and again, Ger- Gerard Gerardi is a real thing, okay. Yeah. And and a purifier is only going to do so much. So be careful where your water is coming from, in the standpoint of being aware of your surroundings. I know guys that have pumped out of running water coming off a stream. What they didn't realize is upstream 200 yards is where all the cattle were watering and pissing in and all that went down through the same water source and they still got sick because it was leaching through and their filter only did so much. With that in mind, most of the guys that I know who have caught Giardia were in areas where there are no cattle. Very few have I ever met that caught Giardia in areas where there were, where there were cattle. Most of those, most of the guys that I know have got it up in Alaska and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I've known a few that have caught it, you know, in the, in the lower 48, but not as many as up higher North. And yeah. Yeah. I know too. But obviously you want to find the cleanest water source that you can. If, if, if you're hunting in a place where there's no choice, but to get it out of a, uh, a dirt tank or something like that. That's nasty, dude. You just do as much as you can to it. You filter it out, you run it through your filter. And then I might take my iodine tablets and dump them in there too. Or Evan might take his SteriPen and treat it with a SteriPen even after it's been filtered. You know, you just double up and do as much as you possibly can to make sure that you've got it clean and then pinch your nose. <laughs> and, and as much as much moisture we have had this year with with the summer the uh the winter snows and the spring rains there should be enough running yeah. water that that should yeah, be in the pond where you're going in colorado anyway okay uh what is the best way to pack mountain house meals to conserve space because i mean they come in those big old bags i mean what's your options there um i oh, open them ahead of time yeah Dude, what you can i i open mine ahead of time one, there's that that little silica packet or whatever in there, so I take that out. But two, then it allows me to just roll them and compress them a little bit more, because I still I still want that um, mylar bag yeah. and the zipper. Yeah, and I I usually just put them in a compression sack and compress them down as much as I can. I don't usually open mine up beforehand, but that's not a bad idea either. Just pop a little hole in it. You're only there for, you know, typically a week or something like that. They're not going to go bad with a little hole in them over that much time, but that's not a, um, since we're on that, I'll ask a question too. How do you organize your food daily? Danny, do you have just all of your food in a stuff sack and you pick from it as you want, or do you organize daily food rations and keep track of stuff? I used to, when I was your age, I used to, I had a spreadsheet and the weight of every single thing went on that spreadsheet. And it was a checklist that I went down and, you know, I knew exactly what every piece weighed and all of those things. But as I've done it over the years, I've just gotten to where I've developed a system. Um, I don't necessarily 
need to weigh each and every little thing that I've got, but I've got all of my food in one big compression sack that goes down into my pack. And every day I pull out that day's rationing. And I'm pretty simple as far as my, as far as my, uh, my food rationing goes and, and what I eat every day, I eat exactly the same thing every single day, except for, you know, whatever my, my dinner is, my, my freeze dried meal that I'm eating. That's going to be different every day, but every, everything else is exactly the same. So typically I'm eating two instant oatmeals for breakfast. And then I've got four of some sort of energy, energy bar, meal replacement bar. And the ones that I'm looking for, I like to try and make sure that I've got at least a hundred calories per ounce. So whatever it is that I'm that I'm eating. If it's two, if it's a two ounce bar, I want to make sure it has at least 200 calories. Yep. And then the other thing that I'll have is usually a little baggie or something full of uh, uh, trail mix or something like that during the day, maybe another little baggie with some uh, freeze dried fruit or uh, dehydrated fruit. Um, and maybe some, uh, maybe some jerky or something like that. So if I do, pre-prepare anything it might be those just buying a big thing of granola and then taking some sandwich bags and making one little sandwich bag of that for each individual day that i'm going to be out there and then so i'm eating on that stuff you know i'm usually eating something every couple of hours the entire day that i'm out there anytime i take a break even if i'm not feeling hungry i'm trying to shove something down my gullet um just to keep your your energy up and then when I come in at night, I'm usually eating one of the uh, freeze dried meals, typically one that serves two. I will eat that entire thing for dinner that night and then go to bed. So it's not very hard for me to plan things out. I need I know that I need two bags of oatmeal and four of my my meal replacement bars, whatever it was that I selected uh, one big bag of something snacky and one bag of something like the uh, jerky or something like that. I don't know exactly how many calories I'm getting every day, but I know that it's enough to where I'm not exhausted and I never really feel hungry on these hunts, just going that route. Evan, I'm sure has a much more complex system. I'll let him break that down for you now. Um, I've, I mean, I've tried to simplify it. Um, I do peak refuel the granola for breakfast. Um, and I, like I said, one thing benefit for me opening ahead of time to save space is I can also make additions so I can add a scoop of protein to that. Um, cause my daily goals for protein intake is still to try and hit my daily numbers there, which is, um, right around 250 grams of protein a day. Um, and then my, my breakdown is fairly simple too. I don't care how the calories are coming because of the physical level of activity. So I'll do, um, I've got jerky, I've got, um, I do gummy bears to get that, that sugar in my system for recovery. And then I do, it's the Lenny and something. It's a, it's a big cookie and it's 16 grams of protein. And then I've got my peak refuel meal at the end of the day. And then I'll do some filling in here and there to try and hit my numbers, which is anywhere from 31 to 3,300 calories in the day. But all of my food for a day is in one one gallon Ziploc bag. So when I get ready for that next day, I pull out 
one bag and I know everything I need for the entire next day is in that bag and I have to go through it. And you, and you just leave the rest hanging in a bear bag. Nice. Okay. Yep. And it stays in camp. So, and I don't need to take the entire meal out because I don't need dinner. So I can pull some of that out to lighten my load throughout the day. Another thing I do quite a bit of is I do typically two energy gels and whether those are GUs or honey stingers. Um, and then the RX butters. So, you know, Justin and a lot of those companies have those small like butter packages. Um, I use the RX brand. Now, one thing that um, I just because it's again, it's a little bit higher quality um, ingredients and a higher protein count. Yeah, that pretty much that pretty much uh, answered my other question of protein bars, say versus a Snickers. So, yeah. Yeah. Avoid chocolate as much as possible, in my opinion, because it's going to melt. That's and again, even if it's cold, you might get away with it. I'd rather not deal with that mess. <laughs> so peanut, yeah, M&Ms, <laughs> peanut stuff like that are okay in my opinion because they melt in your mouth and not in your hands. So trail mix, trail mix with peanut peanut butter M and M's is is a good one for me too. My nutrition when it's on a mountain is nothing like nutrition when I'm at home. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what? All right. I got, I'm going to switch us off food a little bit. Um, what do you, what are your basics of layering efficiently? Evan, you want to address that? I'm pretty, once again, I'm pretty simple. I won't want Merino base or a Merino base layer system of some sort, you know, just a, a base layer shirt and some leggings that I can throw on there if I need to. And then, you know, I've got my, my normal hunting pant that I'm wearing every single day. Now, if I'm back, you know, if I'm in a base camp, I might bring a couple of pair, pairs of pants. If I'm in a spike camp, if I'm backpacking up into a spike camp, it's just the pants that I have on and that's it. And then the, the top, um, you know, I will, I will have some sort of lightweight shirt that goes over that Merino base layer lightweight hunting shirt the next thing i'll have is a puffy jacket if i need to put that puffy jacket on um and then you know a decent set of gloves that are in my pack and a beanie that is in my pack and then um the final layer is rain gear and there have been times where i had to put on all of my base layers every stitch of clothing that i had and my rain gear over top of it in order to stay warm, <laughs> you know, especially in a situation where you're sitting there doing a lot, a lot of glassing or something like that, you know, <laughs> that uh, there's been lots of times where I'm sitting on a ridge top above timberline and the wind is just kicking your butt. But that's the great thing about rain gear is rain gear breaks that wind and you can slap that rain gear on over top of your stuff and usually sit in that wind and still, you know, stay comfortable enough to be there and do your glassing. Okay. Yep. And my, my system is, I mean, pretty much on par with Danny's. Um, I am a Merino hundred percent to the core. Um, I naturally sweat more than anybody you've probably ever met. So I take on the top, I take two different long sleeve hoodie Merinos. Oh. <laughs> um, and I do change them out every day. The one I'm not wearing that day gets turned inside out, gets put in camp on a cedar, on a pine, somewhere out there, just again to air out. Um, and, and then I, 
then I do like I would consider it like an active insulation piece where I can wear it in the morning if I'm out and moving, um, but I can quickly ditch it, get into my pack, and then puffy always, and then rain gear on top. Um, and again, like Danny said, I can go from base to that active insulation to puffy and then rain gear on top to seal a deal. Same thing, I wear one pair of pants in and then I will have merino bottoms in my bag going in so I can wear those to sleep depending on if I know the temperature is going to drop or if it's cold first thing in the morning. My preferred base layer is actually the, the Kuyu zip-offs because once I get my boots on, I can undo my belt, drop my pants, unzip. I don't have to take my boots off, pull everything up, and I've dumped an entire layer. Um, to me, that's just easier in a mountain situation. Um, and then I've got a puffy pair of pants that I always have with me and then rain gear on the bottom. You know, that was, that was one thing I left out is if it, if I know that I'm going to be facing some really cold weather, if the forecast says it's going to be bad or something like that, even if you never need it, uh, the puffy pants make a great pillow. Those puffy pants are something that go in because they're lightweight. You can compress the heck out of them. If you need them, you got them. Cause again, um, and in a, in a pinch, those things will save your butt. And, uh, the, the other thing that I forgot to mention was my socks and my underwear. So basically when I'm backpacked in, I have one set of underwear and one pair of socks for every two days. And literally what I will do is the first day I wear one side, the second day, turn my underwear inside out and my uh, and my socks inside out and wear them for those two days. And then they go into, you know, a another uh, compression sack that's for dirty clothes. A burn barrel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah burn barrel. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And and most of the time when I'm going on hunts, it's it's nine days or or well, probably effectively eight with travel days. Um, and so I'm taking three pairs of underwear for the trip and three pairs of socks. Yeah. So, and then again, if I'm going in for four to five days to see what's in the area, I'm wearing one, taking a second with me. And again, that allows me to change socks out and kind of like air them out, allow my feet to breathe a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then you can either do the rotation on the underwear or same thing with my Merino. I'll socks are, socks are important. They, if they get wet, man, I, I mean, take them off, hang them. So at least at least I'm not holding some of that in. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a breather. You can start developing blisters and things like that. So Evan's right. You know, there are times where they might've gotten wet one day wet. for whatever reason. Yep. Um, and in, in that case, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and let really them dry. Quickly. I'll usually have something rigged up under my tarp or in my tent to where things can be hung up and and stay dry and let i'll let those dry out and then use fresh pair of socks the next day and then go back to the to those socks after they've dried out all the way yeah that makes sense and everybody's again everybody's feet everybody's bodies are a little different um i feel like again as much as i sweat material of socks can really have an impact on that um so this last trip i took to idaho um i was actually playing with three different three different materials from two different companies. And one of them, I was at the top end of the size range. And what initially attracted me to it was it had a little bit more cushion, 
um, especially for the bottom of my foot and then some of those key spots that typically get hot. But what I found is because of the material and the fact that I don't wear liners, my foot moved a little bit more in there. And so after one day, I think we were, I think we were, it was just a seven mile day. Um, but the end of it, we did haul a bull out and it was, uh, 900 or a thousand feet straight down off that face to get him out. And with the allotment of shifting in my foot, I felt like that actually created more hot spots where the other materials didn't allow me as much internal movement in my boot and just kind of hugged my foot better. And so to me, there was actually gave my foot some breathing room and it didn't create those hot spots. So, but another thing you can do too, is you can look at going to a lighter weight sock with a liner. Um, Cause that liner is designed to help pull moisture away from your foot into the sock and then expel it. Okay. That kind of, we kind of touched on the tent thing already. Um, but do you guys want to talk about a tent for other folks that, didn't have any go ahead evan you use tents more than i do mm-hmm. i really am i mean unless it's just really bad conditions i am a tarp guy tarp with a uh, uh a bivy sack around my sleeping bag um and i just like the fact like i said that there's so much more room up underneath there i can you know i'm not as crammed in there as i am in a in a little bitty tent, Evan, you've, you're probably more up to date on some of the better backpacking tents that are available. If I'm going in solo, I'm, I'm taking my, my tarp with me. Um, again, it's a space savings thing. Um, a lot of the elk hunting I've done recently is with my hunting partner. So he's built like Danny. So I've got a big enough two person tent that it is a, it's a, two layer system. So it's not a single wall um, that breathes a little bit better. Doesn't create as much condensation on the internal um, and it's a Kuban fiber. So it's ultra lightweight. So we've got a two person full two person and we can both put packs in the top with us. And I believe that weight comes in at two pounds, 13 with poles and both vestibules. Um, most of them are going to be probably closer to that three and a half pound or even four pound mark. You don't mind spooning with your hunting partners, do you, Tyson? Uh, don't have any hunting partners. <laughs> um, but my my personal preference, especially when it's the two of us, is to go with that <laughs> that larger two man or depend on the the size, like Danny said earlier, is you know get a three person to guarantee the space. Yeah, and I don't plan on spooning with one if I did. <laughs> He, he he's gonna he's gonna find he's gonna find him quick after this trip oh, if he gets something down and needs to pack it out i'm never doing that alone again it's a hurdle uh what is the absolute most important thing that you guys pack besides your bow and your stuff to kill are you talking specifically for a backpacking um elk hunt yes yes for a backpacking elk hunt i Number one, want to make sure that I have a source of light, my headlamp and a backup headlamp. And, uh, you know, I've never had to go to my backup headlamp before, but uh, I want to make sure that I've got a darn good headlamp and backup batteries for that headlamp and then a spare headlamp. Um, the spare headlamp that I use is a Petzl uh, E-Light. And 
it's like $30 and the lightest thing that you've ever seen. It goes in my possibles pouch and stays with me on basically every hunt that I go on. Um, but you don't want to be in the pitch black cause you, it's hard to get anything done. Um, number two, uh, I, man, the GPS system, um, you know, I've gone completely away from uh, a handheld GPS into my phone. I want to make sure that I have downloaded the maps that I need on that thing and that I know how to use whatever app that I've chosen to use and how to use it well and how to navigate with the dang thing. Um, because a lot of times I'm having to do some navigating and finding my little spike camp in the dark. And if you don't know how to use it, you could get caught out there with your pants down one day and end up spending a very, very cold night. Let's see what else. Uh, I'm man, those three mil contractor trash bags for me, like having at least three of them. There's so many things that I use those things for from getting my water to, you know, having something to throw my entire pack down into to get it out of the rain. Um, all kinds of different things, throwing, you know, uh, a liner in my pack for meat. I, I use the heck out of those things when I'm out there. Um, and then I would say a basic first aid kit, you know, mine is basic when I'm on these things, but you need a way to take care of a, a nasty cut, uh, a sunburn, um, ha have something in there to treat bug bites, uh, things like that. And then, uh, a good sharp, a good sharp knife and probably a multi-tool. Okay. <laughs> well, well, since Danny hit all those, um, I, I think a lot of guys underestimate what a trekking pole can do for you. Um, it, whether that's, you know, you snap your poles to your tent and so you need to use those or, um, when it comes to putting more weight on your back than you're maybe ready for, if you haven't packed a ton or haven't packed in a year, you go to pick that first load up and those trekking poles are really going to help yeah. on that hike out. And then I would say from a survival standpoint, <laughs> Oh, and a saw, you got to have it. You got to have a decent lightweight saw, you know? Um, <laughs> and I've, you know, honestly, I've been using an outdoor edge, little collapsible saw for a very long time. I do like, like your Wyoming saws and things like that, but once again, they're heavy yep. and everything that yep. I want to bring is measured against how much weight I'm adding everything. And there are hunts where I want to bring a trekking pole, you know, in steeper terrain. Um, but for the most part, man, I like to me personally, now everybody, everybody's different. I'm not saying Evan's wrong for this, but for me, I hauled trekking poles for a long time. And for the number of times where I felt like I needed to use it, I eliminated them from my system because it's just more weight. Unless I'm going into country where I think, you know, like really steep stuff where okay. I might be back, you know, carrying a load out and stuff like that. They do come in handy then. But if I'm if I'm in a place where I can cut a walking stick on the fly out there, if I really need it, I'm going to cut a walking stick. OK, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then I'm still if you want to give air quotes old school. I've got a map of the area that I'm in and I've got a compass on me. Yep. I, I grew, I grew up through the boy scouts reading map and compass and I am super familiar and comfortable doing that. And if my electronics fail. Yeah. And knowing how to, knowing how to navigate that is, is very important. And you're right. That's a, that, that is a, 
we rely on these electronics more and more. And if it goes dead, if I've got a, if I've got um, a solar unit and it's not getting sun yep. or if the, the charge connection goes down or my, you know, 6,000 megahertz battery pack, whatever, something's not working and my phone goes, always got it with me. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. There's a, there's a lot of people out there that don't know how to run a map and a compass anymore. What, uh, what game bags you guys recommend? Contractor bags for those two? No, no. For the game bags, I'm, I'm using Kafaru game bags these days. Um, and, but there's, there's several good options out there. The caribou game bags are great game bags. I, you know, if anything with the Kafaru's, they might be a little bit heavy, but they're durable. They're not going to rip. Um, and you know, they're, they're, yep. you just wash them out when you're done roll them up and throw them back in you know i think that they're the jam okay yeah yeah and there's there's a there's a ton of good options yeah. and and everybody that has them they've got them in different sizes um, a lot of those companies that are providing yeah. them have them yeah. in different kits depending on what you're going to go hunt whether that's moose or elk or deer or you know whatever those species is going to be so can't can't really go wrong with any of them they're all you know wash and wear anymore uh what uh what size knives like will my white tailed deer cleaning knives work or do i need a little bit longer blade um what, what do you guys recommend there evan you want to go first or you want me to go i can go um i again always be prepared so i typically have like three knives on me um i take my Havilon piranha um surgical blade i think i've got 11 in my kit right now because i broke one um so i've got that as one and then i have a browning replaceable blade um rmef edition so it has it's got a gut hook it's got a scalpel it's got like five different total blades that i can i can change out depending on what part of the animal i'm getting through um and then i keep a it's like a Montana knife, uh, but in Australia made it for me. Um, so it's more of a, a small skinning type, like Taito design. Um, and then I've got a very, very small, like sharpening stone grind wheel that I keep in my kill kit. So if something goes wrong, if I can't get a blade off or if that, that fixed blade starts to go on me, I can hit it real quick and keep going. So, but I think all three of those knives combined weighs six ounces with blades maybe seven for me i man i i really like that outdoor edge the the little replaceable blade knife um i bring two of those one of them that stays in my pack the other one is the one that goes in my front pocket and clips on and you know probably three or four replacement blades for those two and then my third knife is on my multi-tool that is in my possibles patch. And I, I just like it because when you take one out, you know, I can get through basically uh, an entire elk with one blade without it having to be resharpened usually, but I do have, you know, a really lightweight little sharpener that is in my possibles pouch where I can touch a blade up if I need to. But I like the fact that those two, those two knives weigh next to nothing. Uh, you know, two of them together is like two ounces or so three ounces, maybe, you know, 
And then I've got those razor sharp, sharp blades ready to go on there. And I just like how easy those blades come off of there. Like with, uh, uh, they aren't, okay. they aren't tough to get on and off. And, uh, a couple of the other ones that I've used before can be tough to get on and off. And when you're dealing with a surgical blade, and this is coming from a guy that back in 2004, stuck a knife into the middle of his knee, five miles back in and had surgery the next day had to walk out on that son of a gun. I don't like anything that is tough to get on or off, especially when I'm talking about a surgically sharp blade. Yep. Again, it's that, it's that first aid precaution. Like yeah, it's Murphy's law. If it's, if something's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong when you're in the back country. So yeah, do as much as you can to eliminate or make processes as easy and as simple as possible. Okay. Uh, kind of going to go down a rabbit hole here. I've heard you mention two or three times a possible's pouch. What is a possible's pouch? Possible's pouch is a pouch or a little bag that I have with me on any hunt that I go on that is specifically the stuff in that bag is stuff that's designed to get me out of whatever can possibly go wrong. And, you know, usually that bag will weigh about a pound. Um, and you know, I've got things in there like duct tape, zip ties, super glue, um, uh, uh, dental floss, waxed dental floss, um, a, a compass, uh, a, a fire starting kit that basically, you know, with some sort of, uh, some sort of wet fire starter, um, so that I can get a fire started regardless of whether I'm in wet conditions or not a backup release, a backup, um, headlamp, all of those things go into my possibles pouch. And man, there have been times where I've had to use it. Another hunt where I was, several miles back in where I was walking with a heavy load and all of a sudden I felt some air on my foot. My boot had come apart right at the sole and my entire, my entire foot was sticking out the side of that boot in really steep, nasty terrain. And, you know, I literally, you lose a boot to where it doesn't work anymore and you are up the Creek without a paddle. Well, I was able to take my multi-tool, and zip ties and duct tape and get that boot back together, sewn back together and taped up to where it was fairly waterproof enough to get me out of there without having a disaster. There's, oh, there's been so many different times and I'll usually have, you know, a a little bit of duct tape in there, a little bit of moleskin in there, a little bit of, uh, uh, of electrical tape in there, a little bit. Oh, what is that? Uh, uh, that really super strong tape. I've used it lots of different times to tape up like gorilla tape. No, not gorilla tape. Um, dang it. What is it called? Evan tenacity, the tenacity tape, tenacity tape. And that stuff, I like one year I had uh, a hole got put into my water bladder. I don't know how the heck it happened. It happened in my pack and little tenacity tape. Bam. That thing was fixed. My water bladder was good for the rest of the week. Uh, holes in ripstop nylon uh, in your tarp or your tent, things like that. You, you got to be ready to make these repairs 
you know, on the fly and be able to do things like that. And, and to me, that possible pouch is what, you know, all of those different little things that I might possibly need, whatever I possibly need to get out of a jam goes in there. That's kind of sounds like my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I, uh, I understand that. Yeah. Running your own business. It kind of, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, the, the, the multi-tool that I already say that that goes in that possible. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I never leave home without at least one Leatherman and a couple pocket knives. Yeah. So that multi-tool's important when you're out there. Yes. Um, what do you do with extra trash? When you're up on the mountain, I either put it into do you. Do you burn it? I, well, a lot of times yeah. I burn it before I leave. Um, unless there's been, there's been years where you had fire bans and you couldn't burn anything. Okay. Um, so if, if I'm in that situation, then I've got, I've got an extra little stuff sack compression sack that I take just for putting trash and garbage into. And I'll usually put, you know, it'll, it'll also have like the dirty socks and the, uh, the dirty underwear and things like all of that goes into that bag, you know? And if, uh, if at the end of that hunt, um, I can't burn my trash, then it just gets thrown in there and packed out with me. And I gotta say, man, there was, I hate to admit this, but years ago, uh, when I first started backpack bow hunting, um, there was a time where I tried to bury my trash and we came up there a year later and something had found it, a bear or something like that. And we were finding some of my trash all over the place. And I felt terrible, you know, and uh, picked it all up as, as much as we found, you know, but that doesn't work. You can't bury your trash up there. You either got to haul it out with you or burn it. Okay. okay. And I, I use my first day's ration bag. So again, that, that one gallon Ziploc bag that each of my days goes in Yeah, that first one that gets used, that becomes my trash bag. So again, if, if we're running a cold camp, see, I, I bring a sack though. Do you, do you put all of that in a sack? So that, yep. because if I'm in bear country, I'm going to hang that thing up outside someplace. So I, I do the, uh, Kafaru sill nylon bags. Yeah. And those are my, those are my meal bags. Yeah. So when we go to hang stuff at night, I've got that whole bag with all of my food and trash in it that gets hung. Yeah. And so once it comes down, gets sorted into my pack, gets hung back up into the night, all the trash comes out and gets put in there. So yeah, no, no food, no toothpaste, deodorant, like none of that goes into my tent, into my shelter ever. So toothpaste too, huh? Evan, I've never really thought about, I have my deodorant, and my toothpaste in there. Yep, I put I put toothpaste and deodorant up in my bear bag. Okay, interesting. Just because, again, you never know. Um, and one of the one of the years, and the first time it really hit me on having to put that stuff in a bear bag. Uh, senior year in high school, we were hiking uh, Philmont down in New mm-hmm. Mexico, which is the large Boy mm-hmm. Scout ranch, and we rolled into the last camp for our trek. And they had had a bear attack the day before. And one of the kids had egged it on. He took a, a Gatorade packet, one of the um, drink mixes. And they hadn't seen a bear the whole trip. So he opened it up and spread it all over camp, trying to get one in there. 
but the tent that the bear physically went to, the kid had his toothbrush and toothpaste and his deodorant in there with him. Hmm. So I was like, okay, well, he probably, he well, probably didn't have unscented deodorant. He probably had some sweet smelling stuff. Yeah. Which, and again, yeah. Toothpaste could do it though. But, but again, if, if you don't take those precautions, then you have the potential for that. And if you go ahead and put it up, like I'm going to brush my teeth and I'm going to do my, my dry shower and just not worry about stuff going into my tent mm-hmm. that has any kind That's of scent to it. Good idea. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. How many miles do you guys recommend going in by yourself? Oh, dude. That, I mean, is that, is that just based that on totally, what you think you can handle? Um, no, it, that, that to me, and, and that's a matter of where I need to be to be on a successful hunt, you know? And, and the farther you go in, the better your, your plan for get for meat care has to be. That's your number one limiter Mm -hmm. is if you're going in by yourself and you don't have a packer, you got to have a plan for how you are going to uh, keep all of that meat. And you might have to make, you know, how much time you're going to have to go in and out to, to get meat out of there. But I, you know, I'll tell you right now. I mean, um, I think that there's a lot of guys that are walking right past good country to hunt going thinking that they've got to get all the way back in there that isn't always the case but sometimes it is the case and you gotta you gotta figure out where they are and that's that's where you need to be and you know especially on the public land over the counter type stuff there's been a lot a lot of the successes that i've had over the years came because i heard that yeah there's elk back there but i don't know how you'd ever uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you'd ever get one out of there. Well, that's where I ended up going and I ended up killing them. And then I had to worry about getting them out of there. And sometimes it can be an absolute butt kicker, but you just, if you got to stay an extra day to get everything out right, then that's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Essentially say I get an elk down. What yep. And essentially how many loads is that going to be? I mean, is that, I know it's based on what I can carry, but I mean, average, what what would it be four loads out? But it all, it all depends on where the animal's at, how big or how mature the bull is. Um, And again, bull versus cow. And then where's your camp at? Because if if your camp is two miles in and you kill him two miles further, you've got to get all that meat to your camp. And now you're shuffling from camp, which camp is going to be the last thing you want to take out because obviously you want to get your meat down taken care of. If you can get that meat back to the truck, run down to a town and get ice in coolers, you can go back for camp because there's nothing yeah. in camp that's going to spoil because you've taken care and you've done your, your due diligence there to get your food up in a, in a tree away from a bear. So nothing's going to be in there to, to disturb any of your stuff. You don't have the, the issues there, but how much can you physically handle? How far back in are you? How long is it going to take you to make one trip? Are you doing bone in bone out? You, I can tell you right now, if you're in that situation where you're by yourself, yeah, you got to bone it out. You got to take that bone out because that's going to allow you to get oh man a little bit more on the way out and cut down your trips. Bone in is awesome because it maintains structure, so it doesn't just leach down and sit in the bottom of your pack. But you can use straps to cinch it up and kind of push that load up towards the middle and upper part of your back, 
And by taking that bone out, you're dropping 15 pounds on the back quarter. A third of the weight. 20 pounds. So, I mean. At least. I mean, it can can completely reduce one whole load. And I can tell you right now, if you're going in solo, you need to know how to bone one out. 110%. And that's, uh, I, I got done carrying bones a long time ago. If I'm real close, I'll carry an entire quarter out, but not unless I'm pretty darn close to the truck. If, if I've got that thing boned out, I can usually take a hind quarter, a front quarter and a back strap in one, in one load. Wow. Wow. Yep. So you're taking half, you're taking half that, half that elk in one trip. So you got two trips plus camp. If you're, if you are mounting that bull and bringing a cape out, now you have three trips. Well, we hope we get to that situation. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, the number one thing is knowing how you're going to keep that meat from spoiling and what the, here, here's the deal. It can be pretty darn hot outside. And if you can get that meat off the ground, so off the ground with air circulating around it, you're usually going to be okay. It can, it can keep for a, a couple of days. If you've got it up off the ground, hopefully in the shade, you know, hopefully you're in a place where you can find some shade North side of a tree. Um, and what I usually do when I'm by myself like that is I will quarter the thing out. I won't debone it just yet. I'll quarter it out. And the first thing that I do is to go find someplace where I can build a hang. And, you know, in most of the places that I'm elk hunting, I've got some timber around so I can, I can find a stout log to hang between two trees. Now I'll take, I'll take the leg off of say uh, a hind quarter or a front quarter. I'll take it off at the knee and then I will take some paracord. That was the other thing that is extremely important. We forgot about that earlier. Yep. Paracord is extremely, extremely important. At least 50 feet of it uh, as much as you want to carry. And that goes in your possibles pouch. I do. I do two two 50 foot spools of it yeah. in my kill kit. And I, I have an even lighter weight. It's like a two or three mil. I don't know. It's super, super lightweight designed. It's a reflective one designed for, um, yeah. Staking out tents. And I've got another 50 feet of that. That's mainly for my bear rope because it's the reflective, but it gives me 150 feet of extra rope. Well, back to what I was doing with the paracord, like I will get that hang built and then, I will go ahead and hang my quarters with paracord from that thing. Now, if there's absolutely no way to get a hang built, what I'll do is I'll lay out, I'll build a table and I'll take some, uh, some limbs that I can lay that meat or the, the quarters down on and try to have as few contacts as possible underneath the quarters so that the the air can come up from the bottom, but the most important, you want to get as much air to it as possible. If you have part that is laying on a rock or touching the ground, that's the part that will spoil the part that the air can't get to. So if at all possible, I will build a hang. I'll hang all four quarters from there, lay the back straps over the top of it and let it hang like that. And then I'll take one at a time, take one quarter down, debone it, put it in a game bag and 
go ahead and get going. And then the ones that I leave there, I'll go ahead and take game bags and wrap them up around there, but try to keep them loose so that there's air around them, just keeping the flies off of it. And, and the other thing that the hang allows you to do, because this is what we had to do in Idaho with Daniel's bull, one of our engineers that we just shot last week, is if those quarters are hanging, you can now debone at eye level instead of on the ground. Yeah. And the meat is yep. naturally going to fall down yeah. into your game bag. Now, if you're by yourself, you usually got to lay it down. A little more difficult if you're by yourself, but but if you got if you got two guys, man, you just have one hold that game bag underneath of it and then yep. the other one do the the deboning that just falls right off into the game bag. Yeah. Let let gravity work for you. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh what do you look what do you look for on uh to set up camp on the mountain? I mean, is there any things you guys look for besides level ground? And maybe some flat water. and close to water. <laughs> and <laughs> yep. sometimes that's possible <laughs> yep. and sometimes it's not. And you know, I will find the the most level piece that I possibly can. If I can't find something level, and there's been plenty of times where I'm truly doing a run and gun and maybe just staying in a bivy sack and don't even have a tarp where I'm just staying out one night there's been times where I haven't been able to find anything that resembles level at all. And then all I do is I just put my head uphill mm-hmm. and try to put something maybe on the ground under my butt to where I won't slide down the hill too bad. But <laughs> that's, that's about it. That's, that's all you can do. Yeah. Find a deer bed. And, and on, yeah, I would say, I would say in a lot of those situations, that's exactly what I look for is something yep. just on the upslope side of a, a tree because that's that's essentially going to be your flattest spot that's why deer bed there the way they do a lot of times they dig them they dig them out for you yep 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 if you can find one and and again elk will do the same thing on a lot of those a lot of those sides so you just do the best you can and hope that you can find some water and and if you're in a tent the bigger the tent the bigger the flat ish spot you need to be in so keep that in mind too uh, what are the basic calls that you guys think I need to know? How to cow call. Okay. Mew. Uh, I want to know at least how to do a light bugle too. Yeah. Okay. There's, so. there's, uh, okay. there's a lot of varying opinions on this. Some guys, some of the best elk hunters I know don't even, they don't call at all. They just go completely spot and stock. Mm-hmm. For me personally, that, def- that defeats the entire reason that I love elk hunting so much. I love the interaction. That's what, turns my crank there's no way i would ever consider not calling and when it when it comes to calling you do have to know how to do a cow call you do need to be able to do it softly and you not just loud because it's a lot of times when you're learning to call you can do you you can you can make good cow calls as long as you're getting some pressure on that reed and blowing some air through it pretty hard it's very important to know how to do very soft cow calls yep and you know, it, it, the same thing goes to, to bull calls, bugling, uh, chuckling, things like that. It, it, try to learn how to do them softly as well. And at least having one bull call, a little squeal or something that you can use as a locator or, you know, in a situation where uh, you're on a bull that has cows and you are tailing them and you can't get him to turn around and you've got to try something to get him convinced to come back and take a look. A lot of times a bull calls what's going to do it. 
And I always have a tube with me. My bugling is horrendous. Typically, that's why bulls go the other way when I call. So when I personally use a tube, I'm actually doing groans, moans, whines, glunking. So I'm not really having to put any kind of effort into getting a bugle. I'm using the softer bull vocalizations where I'm physically trying to talk to the potential cow that's in estrus in that herd. And I'm communicating with her versus challenging and fighting with that bull in hopes that I'm going to piss him off because I'm ignoring him and I'm focused on one of his girls. He's going to come over, try to cut her off or come over and push me out. And that's where the opportunity comes. Just because I know more likely than not, if I get on and try to bugle at him, he's going to round him and go. That's just me and, and my experience with my personal calls. Makes sense. Something to keep in mind um, with that said, though, Tyson, yes, sir. is you, don't, you do not have to be perfect. You don't. The worst elk callers that I've ever met have all been elk. All right. Rem- remember that. Like, seriously, there's yeah. some of the oh, guys get in, in their head that they have to sound perfect. You don't have to sound perfect. Knowing when to use a call is much more important than the actual quality of the sound that you make. And I'm going to learn that just by getting out there and getting the experience. Yes. It's kind of like calling in my coyote. Yeah. You, I do a lot of coyote calling. Yeah. They, you, and if you've done a lot of coyote calling, you've learned over time when you need to do what? Be quiet. Okay. Uh, what am I looking for uh, as we're wrapping this up? What am I looking for in a perfect elk setup? Like situational. Uh, what to look for, how to get them to hang is, up in that right spot. Is the bull, it, it, is, it really is. Um, is, 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 is the bull talking? All right. The perfect elk setup. Um, you have shooting lanes in front of you. Yep. You have a backdrop behind you. So you're, you're in front of a tree. Don't, don't set up. Yeah. Don't set up behind a tree. Yeah, because they don't set up behind anything. Nope. Nope. Set break, up in front of it. Break your outline. Elk, up. elk are terrible at picking things up that aren't moving. You could be standing there in blue jeans and a cowboy hat, okay. and an elk will walk right up to oh. you and look, not even see you if you don't move. If you have a backdrop, um, if you twitch, if you so much as blink an eye, blink your eye, they will catch that movement. They're terrific at catching movement. They're terrible at picking out stationary things. So set up with a backdrop. Try to find shooting lanes in front of you. Ideally, that wind is coming right in your face. But I can tell you right now, like you get a bull to answer you or you hear one bugling over there and you're going to set up. There's so many times where you can't find the perfect one and you've got to improvise and just do the best that you can with what you've got dealt right there and what the wind's doing and where you have to be positioned. You just find the best spot that you possibly can. Number one, most important thing in my book is to be in front of cover and not behind it. I would do everything you can to be on your feet instead of kneeling down. Yeah. Um, A lot of times guys will try to get close to the ground what happens is you then limit your range of rotation. So if you expect this bull to come in and turn to your left for whatever reason, and you set up on your knees for that, guess what? He's going to your right. And now you, you maxed out. You're going to start collapsing your shoulders. That bow pulls you through. Your opportunity is gone. 
So that's the, the other thing, the position of your feet. And Evan's exactly right. Whenever possible, stand up. Don't get down on your knee. The second thing is pay attention to the position of your feet. If that bull is sounding off right in front of you and you're expecting to see him dead in front of you, you do not want your feet to be directly facing him. You want your, if you're a right-handed archer, you want your left shoulder to be directly facing him. Yeah. And then if he does swing to the right, you've got some range where you can pivot at the waist and just come over there. If he goes to the left, you can spin all the way around 180 degrees without moving your feet to get a shot. Does that make sense? If you're, if you're, if you're facing right at him like this and he goes to your right okay, that makes and you're a right-handed bow hunter, makes sense. Pretend you just drew your bow and now try to follow to the right without moving your feet. You can't go very far. So it's very important to stick your bow arm directly toward where you think that animal's coming from because you don't want to have to move your feet. That's the number one thing when they're coming in, they're going to be on red alert and they are looking for any little movement and you don't want to give him any movement to pick you off with. You want to, your only movement you want to have is pivoting with him at the waist possibly and drawing that bowstring straight back to your, I mean, straight back to your anchor point without raising your bow in the air. And then, and then the other part of that is timing your draw. Yeah. Okay. His head, not just his eyes, his entire head needs to be behind cover and don't let him get behind a little spruce in front of you. Cause guess what? He can see through it. Okay. Pick the time to draw. You draw too early and you're going to hold forever and guaranteed guaranteed. He's going to hang up facing you probably at 40 plus yards. Cause he's going to pick up on it. There's, there's been times where I, I didn't have the real estate to be able to draw with, I was going to have to draw with his, with him being completely out in the open and wait for them to be moving. Number one, you do not want him to be stationary when you make any little movement. If you have to make movement, make it very slow, very deliberate. And that ability to draw that bow straight back to your nose is extremely important. If you can't do it without raising your bow arm up, lighten the poundage on your bow, you're overbowed. You got to be able to draw that thing straight back without moving your bow arm at all. And if you, there have been times where if a bull is moving fairly quickly, I have been able to slowly go back without getting picked off. But if he's stationary, you aren't going to do it. Yep. Because essentially his neck is his stabilizer, right? Yes, sir. But there's still enough going on as he's moving that that head is articulating. And so his his world is moving so you can get away with small things. Everything else is moving, too. Yes. A lot of a lot of good stuff here in this podcast. You guys covered a lot and helped me out a lot. So that's great. Well, we could probably do a. a whole nother one because there's lots more to cover, but we're, we're running out of time right now. Well, we, we hope that you come back from this thing and we have a second podcast, tell a cool story about a bull mm-hmm. yeah, and how some ideal. of this stuff worked out for you. That'd be yeah, ideal. That'd be awesome. And we're hoping that, yeah, you know, we, I know we covered a lot during this thing, but hopefully there was somebody out there listening that's getting ready for one of these. And they're like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. That, 
that's something that's going to help me out. Uh, that was the whole intent of this. Um, if you got anything that you can think of in closing, Evan, I can't believe like when we were asked, what is the most important gear? I had paracords, one of the top and I left it off. Yeah. And, you know, and again, it's, it's some of those things that it's, it's in my kill kit or it's in my possibles. And I know it's always there because I never take it out. Yeah. One thing I would reiterate is find an organizational system for your gear. Yes. Um, I use a ton of small pullouts. Yep. And, and I know my kill kit is a blaze orange pullout. And then each one of my different pullouts has different colored paracord attached to it. And each one means something different. And I know what is in each one because it never changes for my house. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is just dump all your gear in that backpack. Mm-hmm. Ooh. All of it, it, you know, my my apparel, my possibles pouch, my food, my cook set, all of those are in their own little bags, little ditty bags, lightweight ditty bags. And, you know, as you pull those things out, you know, okay, I don't need this today while I'm actually hunting. This stays back in camp. That's the best way to go about it. Don't just be throwing things down into that big old bag. Unscented baby wipes, an entire fresh (laughs) unopened package. There is nothing, that, there hey, is nothing better than a fresh wipe with oh, a baby dude. wipe. Okay. Yes. And, and again, you want to have your gear where everything has multi-purpose Purpose. use. Yeah. Okay. So a, an unscented baby wipe is going to be your toilet paper. It's going to be your napkin. Kleenex. It's going to be your Kleenex. It is also going to be your shower at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. So. Take a brand new, fresh one. It'll get you through an entire week and you'll probably have a little yep. bit left over, but it is one of the best things I started packing. God, I know um, that we're even, leaving even things for the out. weight. Yeah. Like again, yeah. There's, there's just little things that keep popping up as we do this, but I, I can tell you the first time that I ever did this Tyson, I was probably 23 years old. The first backpack in hunt that I did, me and my dad went to Cabela's and we bought a bunch of stuff. And I mean, I remember going through and saying, Oh yeah, that one, we could definitely use that. We could definitely use that. The next thing you know, we're headed in there with 75 pound packs or something like that. It was ridiculous. And you learn real okay. quick that you need to measure whether you want that piece of gear or not against how much it weighs and what the likelihood is going to be that you're going to need it. And is there another piece of gear that you can use for the same thing that you've already got in your pack? Because you don't want to be heading in there with 65, 70 pounds on your back. That just, that will break you down. Yep. Loaded, loaded pack for five to seven days with water. Be like 50 pounds. Yeah. 55, 58 pounds. Yep. Yep. And that's, and for me, that's with four liters of yeah, water. That's great. Guys. It's my, it's my three liter camelback and my yeah. Nalgene. Yep. Hope this. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Well, we hope this helped you out. Hope everybody enjoyed it. And, uh, want to wish everybody good luck out in the elk woods this year. And especially you, Tyson, hopefully we get you back on here with a good story to tell. It's been an honor being on here. So, but, uh, I guess you guys have a good day. All right, you too, brother. Good luck. Yep, we'll see you. Bye. Yep. See you. Enjoy, buddy. Have a good one.